When the extremes on the right and the left are both saying you're wrong, you're probably right. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N. and at the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. She has also served as Middle East Director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. Hagar, thanks for being here again. Thanks, Ron. Always enjoy being on with you. Also returning to the Roundup, senior advisor to the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He is now a senior fellow at the University of California at Irvine School of Social Ecology, the one and only Mike Madrid. Mike, what do you have for breakfast today? Uh, numbers for breakfast. Numbers are back on the menu. It's that time of the year. I think it's probably a winter thing, sort of like squirrels. You're kind is. of digging in, for, digging in for everything they've been saving up uh, during the previous <laughs> part of the year. It's now time to start harvesting. And uh, we got some New Hampshire stuff. So I'm looking forward to the conversation with both of you guys today. That's an Easter egg for the OGs. Up first <laughs> this week, Trump and Biden cruise to victory in New Hampshire. We will discuss what the wins mean for both candidates and how the Biden team is now preparing for the general election. Then we will look at how reaching a border deal would help Biden in November and how that very political reality is the reason Republican leaders are trying to prevent one. Later, we'll talk about the incredibly stark assessment, those are the White House's words, that Russia could win their war against Ukraine in a matter of weeks without additional military aid. Then we're going to illuminate other political developments that we're watching and why. Then after the main show, we are going to tape our Politicology Plus episode where we're going to discuss AI systems and the fight over whose values are embedded within the technology and what it will say and what it can be used for. And we're going to unlock this one as a preview. So if you're not a Plus subscriber already, you can look for that on your Plus feed right next to this Roundup episode. And the best way you can support us, if you like the work we're doing here and you want more conversations with excellent guests like these in an ad-free listening environment, is join us at Politicology Plus. Just go to politicology.com slash plus and get your private podcast feed today. On Tuesday, Donald Trump and Joe Biden won their respective primary races in New Hampshire. Over the weekend, the Republican field was whittled down to just two when Ron DeSantis bowed out of the race and endorsed Trump. Here's that endorsement. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance, and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. Well, I've had disagreements with Donald Trump, such as on the coronavirus pandemic and his elevation of Anthony Fauci. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. 
Trump beat Nikki Haley by about nine points, effectively snuffing out the, uh, I'll be charitable and call it a glimmer of hope instead of a collective delusion a lot of people had that she would mount a serious challenge. New Hampshire has an open primary, so unaffiliated voters can vote in either the Democratic or Republican primary. Uh, In ABC News exit polls, 46% of Republican primary voters were undeclared. Uh, Haley won 60% of independents who participated in the Republican primary, uh, beating Trump by 22 points there. Trump won the Republican voters by 49%. Uh, Haley also won college-educated primary voters by 14 points, but Trump opened up a 36-point lead among voters without a college degree. And finally, 84% of Haley voters said they would be dissatisfied if Trump won the nomination. And uh, uh, Mike is going to tell us in a minute that that doesn't mean they wouldn't necessarily vote for him, though. Trump also racked up an endorsement from Tim Scott last week. But the most notable line from Scott came after Trump won the primary on Tuesday night when Trump was talking about Scott endorsing him over Haley. And here is that exchange. She actually appointed you, Tim. And think of it, appointed, and you're the senator of his state. And she endorsed me. You must really hate her. No, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Uh-oh. I just love you. No, that's, that's why he's a great politician. One of the most fucking cringeworthy moments in politics recently. Uh, so, barring some catastrophic or, uh, well, health-related event, the general election, Trump versus Biden matchup is pretty much cooked. And we're now in this uh, go-time moment. The race is starting in earnest. In fact, Biden has just moved two of his top aides to the campaign headquarters. Uh, Mike Donilon is moving from his role as senior advisor to the president to be chief strategist on the campaign, which is what he did in 2020. Jen O'Malley Dillon is moving from her post as the deputy chief of staff at the White House to direct the campaign. And uh, this move comes after weeks of concern from strategists and donors uh, because Donilon, O'Malley Dillon, and Anita Dunn we're all pulling double duty at the White House, doing both uh, foot in each camp. Um, and I think they got a talking to from Obama a few weeks ago. Mike, walk us through the tea leaves. How are you reading the numbers from Tuesday night? Boy, a lot of tea to, tea to consume here. So let's just start from the top. You know, for all the criticism that um, our early primary and caucus system gets with having very non-representative states like Iowa and New Hampshire being the first in the nation to kind of give us a, a real-time sense of what's happening politically. Um, I will say, this is the first time I would say that I'm very glad that these two states went first because they are actually a perfect encapsulation of the Republican base, and they give us a very, very good glimpse into what is happening with the dynamics in the Republican Party. The first is Iowa, which, of course, you saw the caucuses in negative five-degree weather, people showing up, not a whole lot. Um, but Iowa has a very strong evangelical community, much more so than New Hampshire. And so you have a really strong values-based voter there, which is a huge part of the Republican coalition. The other significant part tends to be this non-college-educated blue-collar worker that's more economically driven, the economic anxiety voter, and that's New Hampshire. So having these two go first with Trump on the ballot uh, and the other candidates give us a really, really good real-time assessment of how voters and how motivated and what is driving them actually are. It's not the polling. It's not the punditry. It's actual real good data. And what it's telling us is this. Uh, in both states, 
we are seeing about 15 to 19%, depending on whether you look at CNN exit polls or AP VoteCast, both of which are very credible um, you know, sources of information. 15 to 19, about 15 to 20% of Republican-based primary voters are telling us they will not vote for Donald Trump in the general election. That, to me, is the only data points to be looking at. I was saying that for a while. Is I don't care if Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire. She's not going to win the primary. It doesn't matter. I, we may have fun with it. It may give a little bit more of a media run. But look, in New Hampshire specifically, because, because you can, as an independent, vote in a Republican primary, um, the data is a little bit muddy. It's a little bit noisy. It's not as clean as we'd like. And that's why we look for those exit polls. We're not looking for anything pre-vote. We're looking for exit polls. And again, the data is telling us something that is fundamentally different than what we saw in January of 2020 when we were just getting the Lincoln Project kicked off and we were starting to see numbers saying at most we were going to be able to get to like 7 to 9% of Republicans to bail on, on Donald Trump. We're now sitting at at least double that, at least double that, maybe a little bit more. Now, will some of those votes come back? I think some of them will come back. I think a considerable amount of them will come back. I'm absolutely convinced that not all of them will come back. And that's extremely important because what that means is Donald Trump is is strong and dominating the Republican Party. I think the intensity for him with, amongst his voters have gotten even stronger. There's no question he has this unholy, weird, peculiar grip on these voters. But for those marginal voters that have been moving away from them, he has been um, increasing that divide with them while he has been uh, increasing that intensity with base voters. And he lost in 2020 by losing 9% of these voters. He's again in a weaker position now than when he ran and lost uh, in 2020, four years ago. There's two other reasons why, and again, I'm looking at this um, 30,000 foot as we're just beginning this race. And I'm not making any predictions right now. I'm just saying the fundamentals of this race look very good for Biden at this point. In time, the second is that um, you know he's losing. He lost sixty forty amongst independents in New Hampshire, which is brutal. It's just a brutal takedown. Uh, no Republican can recover. A Democrat couldn't recover. Remember when Hillary and and uh, and, and Trump ran in twenty sixteen? Um, Trump had that late break amongst independents after the Comey report, the announcement that she was under investigation. Anyway, uh, that so so look. This is in some ways this is going to look a little bit like twenty sixteen. In some ways, it's going to look a little bit like 2012. I, I, I'm sorry, 2020. Uh, I'm really looking at 1996 as a model of what this race is probably going to look like. Just because you have Biden, who I think is bottoming out right now with his polling numbers, I will make this prediction. I think the race begins to get much tighter now in public opinion surveys. I think voters are starting to see that this is a real race and they're going to have to make a decision. It's going to be a long, long, long general election slog. You saw correctly pointed out that uh, the adults in the room in Biden land are now taking over and moving over full time and saying, we can't run the government and the campaign. We need to go run the campaign. And you're starting to see uh, even some some early polls showing Biden doing really, really well in places like Pennsylvania and such. So uh, that to me is the environment. That's what New Hampshire is telling us. God bless Nikki Haley and Chris Christie and everybody else. Uh, who was, you know, began to take on, not everybody else, those were the only two that were truly taking Donald Trump squarely on. Um, they did point out some weaknesses, but I think, as I said here on the show, their, their, their involvement is not going to hurt Donald Trump. It does give, I guess, that permission structure back to a broader swath of Republicans saying, no, 
but you can palpably feel, even in, I think in our circles, I'd love to get your impression, Ron, on this. You can feel that there's more, uh, more, there, not, not a lot more, not, 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 uh, you know, as many as we would like, but there are definitely more people stepping up and saying Trump is bad from Republican land and saying, I'm just not going back this time. I don't, I'm not feeling it. And, and like I said, even if that's one in 10 Republicans, um, that's a huge, massive number. He lost with by losing nine percent last time, and he's he's currently this will tighten, but he's currently double that. So that's my takeaway from from New Hampshire. But I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. I think that's I think your your observation that more people are standing up and saying not going back is 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 right. I think part of that is because Trump has gotten so much scarier and worse than he was before. Obviously there's the mental fitness issue. He's he's not all there all the time either. But more so than that, I think it's because it's becoming easier for people to visualize exactly how much more sophisticated a Trump operation in the White House in 2025 would be and just how damaging and potentially democracy ending uh, it could be. And we're going to start talking a little bit more about that. His campaign is more sophisticated. They've got an operation. They're, they're, yeah, they're not, they've got an not, operation. They've got a they've got a plan for day one as well that could lead to you know the the biggest transformation of the federal government and subversion of democratic norms than we have seen or even maybe envisioned um, uh, from Trump world. Uh, and I don't think and Hagar, this is where I'd love your view. Uh, I don't think that a lot of that has really been bubbling up to the surface of mainstream media coverage because they've been so focused on this primary as if it's a real primary and you know the narrative around that i think is maybe going to shift now hopefully now that new hampshire's over um last week alex thompson of axios was on and he predicted that you know uh if if trump won convincingly in new hampshire that maybe some of this would start to shift and we'd stop you know obsessing over the republican primaries if it's a real race um how do you think about that how does the you know, the the change of framing of conversations about the Trump versus Biden rematch start to take place. Well, first, I agree with you. Some of the media coverage has been a little weird, I find, on on this. Is part of it is though it's a real race, but I understand why. Um, you know, they they have to, but but they also I do feel like we're falling back into the same routines that we were in 2016 with, you know, maximalist coverage of Trump. And then, and then I also, I find that there's this heavy media focus on, on Biden losing voters over the Israel Gaza conflict, which I, I refuse to accept. I just don't see how that's going to play out unless it means that voters are going to stay home. But, but that's what the, 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 no, the yeah. notion that it would go to Trump to me that or that that voter would go to Trump and as some of them have threatened is is just willful ignorance in my in my opinion, because there was Trump was very, very loudly supportive of Israel. And I believe that uh, if you were if you had a situation like this, I actually don't think that he would extricate himself the way he implies for other foreign conflicts. Um I think he would do everything he could to to support Israel, and so I, 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 you know, I hate that the way that it's been portrayed um, in in that light. The thing that um, the thing that I, I, so the thing that I, I find that people are not focused at all on his day one plan, and in fact, I, I would, I hazard to say you're the first to to talk about it. And even when I went to his website, I did a cheat sheet for my own show on on his foreign policies, and I went to the website, and it's it's not, it's very vague. And very general, but some of it very clearly has this effort to walk back democratic norms, as you said. Oh, big time. And, 
Yeah, and a good, you know, it's funny, a good example of that is, and not to take to everything to foreign policy, but in one of his campaigns, he went out and said that his, you know, the witch hunt after him and, and, and this, the, that the, uh, all the, the charges he's facing and so on, he used Vladimir Putin as basically as a character witness of the United States, because Putin had come out at some point a couple months ago or a month ago and said that, that this that this effort to run after Trump and then these criminal charges showed, quote, the rottenness of the United States and the, how everything was politicized and so on. That's not surprising to hear from Vladimir Putin. What is surprising was to hear Trump use that publicly as proof that the U.S. was, quote, rotten. And he said that. And that again shows further, you know, his plans to erode it's 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 not just democratic norms but when you when you erode faith in our systems then it it crumbles the government it encourages conspiracy theories it it and that eats away at I mean, it's away at everything but it eats away at our democracy it eats away at the ability to discern truth from fact from from fiction um and the problem and you can see this Israel is a perfect example of this. When things are not going well in your own country, when things are very divisive and you are very and your country is very focused on that and obsessed with it, which was the case in Israel up until October 7th, you create vulnerabilities for adversaries to take advantage of and I am particularly concerned about that as well. Yeah, one thing just to button this segment up and I want to dig into more of uh, what you're saying in the Ukraine segment, but one thing we've been talking about and I think are going to make a valiant effort to do is stop using the word democracy on its own, small d democracy, as if it actually means something to most people, means the same thing to most people, uh, and instead start to talk specifically about what we are afraid of happening under a Trump presidency. Because I think that, I think the phrase uh, saving democracy or defending democracy has just become so, um, you know, meaningless, empty at this point, uh, that we really do need to start to, to, to be explicit about what norms would be violated and how, and how that may end up, um, you know, stopping, uh, liberal democracy in the United States, uh, or halting it in some way. So yeah, we're going to talk more about that. Um, Okay, in these next two segments, we are going to talk about border security and Ukraine aid. These are linked because of how Congress is handling them, but we're going to take them on one at a time. Uh, and so first, we're going to take a look at the border crisis and the politics here. So the surge in migration and border security um, look like they are going to become a, a major issue. They already are a major issue. They're not going away anytime soon. Uh, and... Trump and Republicans, uh, congressional Republicans, will likely do everything they can to keep it in the spotlight because it is um, helpful for them, which is actually pretty easy for them because it's becoming a serious problem in places far removed from the southern border. Uh, the shelters, the emergency shelters in cities like New York and Chicago and Boston are all overwhelmed. Uh, New York has been housing migrants in tents in a park in Brooklyn for months, and a couple of weeks ago we talked about the city moving them to a school during an extreme storm and students at that school then were switched to remote learning the next day. Um, in Boston, Chicago, they've started to house migrants in uh, major airports overnight. So you have these images of families sleeping on the floor at Boston Logan 
Um, the CBS affiliate in Boston is reporting that they don't have access to showers. Nine Democratic governors now sent uh, a letter to the president and congressional leaders asking them to uh, improve the immigration system, respond to the surge in migrants at the border, and provide funding to deal with the humanitarian crisis. Earlier this month, we talked about polling showing Biden's approval rating on immigration hit an all-time low of 32, uh, 68% disapprove. Now, congressional Republicans have a 35% approval rating on immigration, so not much better. Uh, the negotiations over a border deal were inching forward until Wednesday. There was even a reported deal on how to handle parole authority, which has been the sticking point with Biden up until now. Uh, but then on Wednesday, Punchbowl News reported that Mitch McConnell told Senate Republicans that the politics of the border had changed. And according to Punchbowl, McConnell told them Trump wants to center his campaign on immigration and that the Senate, wait for it, shouldn't do anything to undermine him. The Huffington Post reported that Trump had also reached out to several Republican senators on Wednesday, urging them to reject any deal on the border. And all of this comes as the Biden administration is fighting with Texas over border enforcement and whether or not the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is one of the agencies responsible for putting up wire, uh, razor wire, concertina wire, said that the state would uh, maintain its current posture by using barriers uh, and wire along the Rio Grande. Um, so, Mike, I guess, first of all, what do the numbers say about border security as a campaign issue? We've talked about this with you on the show before, but as of yesterday, the question I really have is, what happens if this is allowed to fester all the way through to November because it looks like that is now what Republicans intend to do. I think maybe a month ago or so, you and I were discussing this issue and I said, like, why doesn't Biden just get rid of the, take this issue off the table, make it a non, not right? Solve it, cave, give them what they want. Now it looks like even if he gives them everything they want, they're not going to give him, they're not going to pass right. a deal. Right. How does this play? Well, look, as somebody who's been, you know, dealing with this issue in its many multifaceted forms since, you know, I started in politics in the early 1990s, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't done a real immigration deal in this country since 1986. And so this problem has been festering for a very, very long time. Usually you need to get one done every 30 years or so to accommodate changing demographics and um, pressures of increased migration. Are, are the intractability of this problem on both sides of the aisle, and I will go down swinging saying this, this problem has been promulgated by both sides of the aisle for political gain in their respective corners. Uh, I wrote in the New York Times last, last week about the need for Biden to basically jam his base and triangulate and go hard crashing into the center and, and take the mantle and run with this issue. Uh, I wish it would that article, you know, that column I ran, I wrote would have run this week because it's even more important now. He needs to get past the Democrats' strategy of 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 just simply attacking Republicans and uh, using that to energize their base, voters, in order to win elections. And I want to explain mathematically and demographically why. Okay, because we are in a very different era here, and the numbers, the polling, as you you asked shows that this is the weakest issue that Joe Biden has. Set aside the economy, set aside foreign policy, this is the issue, and this is why the Republicans don't want to give it to him, and this is why, if he does his right, he can actually turn this into a massive victory, I think, and not only smash uh, Trump and the Republicans on this, but actually reconstitute the Obama-Biden coalition 
of the earlier part of this century, or at least for the past 20 or 30 years, and redefine the party in a more multiracial, ethnically aspirational way than simply on the border issues. So again, sorry about the big windup, but but basically here it is. From 2007 to 2020, the United States has been experiencing declining immigration. Immigration has been going down for a very long time. And in that environment, Americans of all stripes and all colors are much more amenable to uh, the whole idea and concept of immigrants and migration. Okay, When it's not happening, when we're not seeing it every day, it's very easy to say, yeah, that's good. That's something that we need. Of course, we, we rely on the mythology of Americans. Say, sure, we're all a, a country, a nation of immigrants. In 2020, that's changed. We are seeing, and it is a crisis, and it's okay to say that it's a crisis, okay? This needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with seriously and quickly and efficiently and expeditiously. And every deal on immigration that I have looked at over the past 30 years begins with border security. That is the one issue that everybody can agree on, or at least most. There are, there are a lot of advocates, especially in the Democratic Party, who will say, you know, that's horrible, that's inhumane, and arguably it is, but until you solve the problem, the, the, the solutions get more inhumane because the problem gets more, more uh, they get larger. So the public has shifted on this. I actually got some, some uh, 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 polling results from a, a Data for Progress oh, yeah. group that actually showed yeah. progressives, Latinos, there's no discernible difference between Latinos and whites on this essentially anymore. It's a very small single-digit difference. Latinos are saying increased border security, right? This rightward shift that was happening in 2016 and 2020 is happening most acutely on the border. These are these are Latinos on the border saying, fix this, <laughs> okay? So we need to recuse ourselves of the idea, this fake narrative that has been set in stone by some Latino consultants and Latino advocates in the Democratic Party, making this a defining issue for the Latino vote and Latino community, and it has always been untrue. It is especially untrue now. What Biden needs to do is co-opt the message and start running offense on this. And for the first time in 20 years, put down specific policy proposals that the Senate Republicans agree with, go to the border. And start saying, let's shut this down and defy the Republicans and say, how dare you not fix this problem? We've got the solution. Let's vote on it today and force the Republicans' hands. Go seize the issue. Go run offense. Get past this scary notion that you built in your sense that this is somehow a racist issue or that you're going to alienate Latinos. You know who you're going to alienate? You're going to alienate the Latino advocacy groups about a dozen of them in Washington, D.C. that make a ton of money on this, but you're going to start getting the handful, I'm sorry, not the, 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 the many thousands of Latino voters that are saying increasingly, let's fix this problem. That's what the Biden administration needs to do, and they need to do it quickly, by the way. They need to do it aggressively and quickly while the Senate Republicans are at where they're at and have publicly said what they've said, because you need to jam the House, the House Republicans. If you, by doing that, not only do you increase the chances of winning the House, not only do you start flipping the, the, the Americans' perceptions on the generic ballot, you put Trump in a really big quandary on this. You make him say, no, don't fix the border publicly. He'll start getting asked, and then what's he going to say? He'll come up with some line, he'll keep his base, but he's going to further alienate all those voters, those independent voters, those college-educated voters, and even some of those border 
border communities that are desperate for this, he can't win those back, and he won't. It's a cultural problem in the Democratic Party where they're not comfortable running proactively and offense on an issue where they have been on defense for 30 years, and they're going to have to get past it. That's why I wrote what I did. I was trying to give the president cover and saying, don't be afraid of this issue. Go run on it. The American people will trust you on it. If you put some policy specifics that they can they can not only sink their teeth into, but that Senate Republicans have already agreed to. It's already bi- it's a bipartisan package. It's a bipartisan deal. They're, they're publicly saying we'll support this. Go grab it. Go seize the day. Unleash the cavalry. Go take the hill. Draw your swords and give no quarter on this thing. Take Trump down. Yes. Take the Republicans down. Go beat them at their own game. So interesting when you say, by the way, that this has been a you know a, a problem within the Democratic Party. What we we need to be very clear: this is a very inside the Beltway problem. Oh yeah, it is a cultural problem within the advocacy organizations. And I think when we were discussing the piece you wrote in the New York Times, Lene was on, and I I asked her because she said something like this would blow up the coalition. And I was like, wait, be what do you mean by that? And then she said the advocacy coalition in D.C. that continues to push this issue and. And the, the the very pragmatic folks at Third Way were saying exactly the same thing. Lene is saying exactly the same thing. We need the president to lead. And yeah. leading, I think, looks like exactly what you said. Ch- Go to the border. Yes. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me make you this need- even clear. I don't, I don't know if I'm agreeing with or disagreeing with Lene. I obviously respect her opinion. No, I think online. you are. She, she's, she's where you're yeah. at. Yeah. What I'm saying yeah. is that if you blow up the coalition, good. Triangulate them. Right. Let them argue. Right. Let them argue that you're not progressive enough or open borders enough. Good. Right. Good. Yeah. Keep saying, right. have a sister soldier moment. Go at them. <laughs> but, but go to the border and go run hard at them with, with a bipartisan proposal to solve the problem tomorrow and let the Republicans and the Latino advocacy organizations that are that are promoting open borders or whatever they're promoting, they don't even have a policy prescription. They're just saying no, no, no. Let them both be the ones that oppose you. That's what cements you in the center. When the extremes on the right and the left are both saying you're wrong, you're probably right. Hagar, uh, I know you probably don't have any specific insight here with regard to the White House, but you are very close to the White House. And I wonder if you've heard any uh, chattering about this, about whether or not the White House is going to change posture um, and looking for your overall thoughts. So I haven't heard anybody anybody talk about it. That doesn't mean that, that that they're not thinking about it very deeply or that they're not concerned about it. The thing that I can't understand and that if I if I were in the White House, I would advise them to do this is that we have a very clear national security threat at the border in addition to a, in, in addition to a domestic policy issue. And I find that, and again, I know I could be accused for looking at everything through the lens of foreign policy and national security, but I really feel that that the national security threat that we face at the border, which is now unprecedented, and I'll get into that, is an opportunity for President Biden to use that to shift. If he needs something to shift because it's been unpopular and because Democrats have had this way of of trying to be soft on this issue, then he could use this as an excuse. And the best way to do that, by the way, is that after October 7, uh, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, was testifying on the Hill. Um, this was early December. And he said that we face an, un- an unprecedented foreign terror threat in the United States since October 7, that it has never been this high, number one. And then he said that threat is at the southern border. So he couldn't have been clearer. And I do have a statistic for you on this, by the way. Um, the, the number of people on the terrorist watch list who were stopped at the southern border 
has risen, has been, has been rising. So in 2022, in 2022, a hundred of them had been, and these are the ones that have been apprehended. So these are the known ones. And in 2023, as of September, 2023, so there may be, that's before October 7, 160 migrants had matched those on the terror watch list and had been apprehended. Again, these are the ones that they know of. And that's why Christopher Ray went and he said this. And I, I remember at the time that he did this, I felt like it made some media waves and then it kind of died down. And I and you see President Biden in this in this effort. And I know we're going to talk about Ukraine aid, so I don't want to jump ahead here. But you see him being very willing to negotiate on the southern border and and providing money. I don't love the you know tying these issues together, but he seems very willing. But I agree with Mike in that it's okay to grab this issue by the horns because. I will tell you, sitting in New York, in the in the New York area, I have I've never seen so many people who are left or far to the left talk about the migrant crisis until this year, and it's because, and I hate to say this, but the strategy that that DeSantis and Abbott pursued to to send migrants up to these to to the to cities that you know quote unquote safe haven cities, it's working. It is working because people now feel that pressure and they feel that economic, um, the, the, the struggles with that and, and they feel, you know, a whole other slew of issues with that. And so I think this is, this is the one thing that I can't understand is why, why isn't this from a communication standpoint and a strategic standpoint being couched in more of a national security issue when it so is. There's his out on the racism charge, Mike. No, I mean, there it is. She brings up such a, such a powerful point. If he goes, yep. if he goes to the border and owns this issue, it, it means that anything, if anything were to happen before the election, some sort of domestic terror attack, it, it's Trump's fault. It's not his fault. It's the Republicans' fault. Get out there and do it. Your own security, you know, your own your own uh, intelligence communities are telling you this is a real threat. This is not Fox manufactured at this point. And look. As somebody who's been dealing with this for a very long time, it was manufactured by Fox for, for 20 years. So I'm not saying it isn't. And it uh, it feels icky to agree with a lot of these people. I get it. That's been a big part, frankly, of my career. If you hate agreeing with these bad people because sometimes the right thing to do dovetails with their bad intentions. That that happens right. in politics, unfortunately. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we don't need to. That doesn't mean we don't need to solve the problem. It's pervasive. It's significant. It is the number one weakness that Biden faces, and he sits at this moment at an extraordinary time to go and seize this, take it from them, run offense, divide the Republican base, and just again unleash the cavalry on these guys and let Trump respond. Put Trump on the defensive on immigration. I mean, come yeah. on, like, well, this moment isn't going to last. Go do it this week. Like now, get him out there. That's his biggest cudgel. You could take it away from him. It's his biggest cudgel and you could turn it against him. If you, if you just look at the region, at, at the Central and Latin America, there's no way this doesn't get worse. If you look at what's happening in Haiti and the gangs that have taken over Haiti, and, and that feels like a problem that is insurmountable. If you look at what's happening in Ecuador over the, just, just the last two weeks, where gangs have taken over and caused, caused chaos, that all of these issues, and I'm just highlighting, I'm just skimming the top here, right? These are, these, th this is, there is no end in sight, is my point. And these issues are only getting worse. And we know that they contribute to the migrant crisis, no matter how many times Vice President Kamala Harris goes to the region and says, you know, do not come to the United States. That's that message oh, that was is a not going to get through. Though. 
Yeah. Well, but let me say this too, because it's important that we understand what's happening at the border. We are now at the point where most, most of the people, you know, apprehended and stopped at the border are not of Mexican or Central American descent. There are people from from Asia, <laughs> the Middle East, and Russians coming through the border. This is the way you get into the United States. And so, yes, you are right. This problem is getting bad and worse in Latin America. But it is the entire globe is using this as an entry point. And that, I think, is the national security threat. And problem is, think of the people that we've caught at the border that found on the watch list. W- what about those that we didn't catch? <laughs> like, that's yeah. the worry, yeah. right? That's, yeah. that's the worry. Yeah. And, and that's an, that is a weakness for Biden. If anything happens from now through November, certainly, and I'm not saying just do this for political purposes, it is for national security purposes, get out there now and put Trump and the Republicans on the defense. Say this, own this, and say, I've got, we're going to fix this with Republicans, Senate Republicans. Let them say no, and then you can blame them for saying, you know, this is why this didn't happen. I've just, I've never, in all my years of working on this, I've never been seen an opportunity for Democrats to go on the offense on this. I wrote that piece for the Times to, to hopefully give the president some rationale and some cover and saying, don't be worried about your left flank here, buddy. The voters are with you on this. Latino voters are with you, even though those chirping voices you're hearing aren't. They've got an institutional reason to not be there with you. Go with where the voters are at. Go with where your intelligence community is telling you. Go with where the politics tell you, because that's going to give you good policy out of this. It may not be ideal for some groups, but this is a problem that needs to be stopped, and it's not racist to fix the border problem. It is the first responsibility of a sovereign nation. Best line in the piece. By the way, for the White House staffers uh, listening to this, we'll link to that New York Times article for you in case you missed it. Okay, speaking of tying Ukraine aid to border security, together, as Hagar mentioned, uh, Republicans have done, by the way, this is the same Republicans who, I don't know, ousted their own speaker over his inability to deliver on his promise to vote up or down on individual spending bills, but now they're fine tying disparate things together. But anyway, uh, last week, congressional leaders went to the White House for a private meeting about the war in Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines told the lawmakers that without additional support, Russia could win the war in a matter of weeks, months at best. NBC News is reporting that Ukraine will run out of some air defense and artillery capabilities in the next few weeks. The White House described the assessment as incredibly stark. Sullivan didn't predict an outright imminent victory for Russia, but he did give date ranges uh, of when Ukraine would run low on different munitions. They also emphasized that the impact of not providing additional aid would be far more reaching than just Ukraine. The White House believes it would make other countries like Japan and South Korea rethink their reliance on the United States. So, Hagar, bring us up to speed here. Um, what will it mean for our position in the world if we bail on Ukraine? What's at stake if Ukraine loses? Oh, where do I begin? <laughs> it's so bad. And, and you have to know that I am not, and you know this, I mean, and your listeners know this, I am not an alarmist. You, When you work in national security, you can't be an alarmist. And this I am alarmed at. And, and it's because the ripple effects would be so so far reaching and so catastrophic that it is it is something that we will there will be a very clear cause and effect so um so first let me start off domestically by saying 
I believe that they're going to get this package through. Uh, Biden has, for those uh, who are not following this bill closely, he's requested $60 billion in military aid for Ukraine. There was a bill earlier in December for $50 billion. It didn't go through, and uh, which was embarrassing to start with. And then that's when Republicans said, okay, well, it's because there's no money for, this, for the southern border and we want to tie it together, and that's how we are where we are. Um, I believe, and 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 big and top Republican negotiators have said that while the kinks haven't been worked out, that they do expect they are optimistic that this will go through, and I am too. But that doesn't mean the damage isn't already done. So first, if it doesn't go through, you as as we're hearing from the White House and as was briefed on Capitol Hill. Russia could win this war in a matter of weeks. And that is because Ukraine will run out of the artillery, of the ammunitions, of the munitions that they need to keep on going. And we've always known that this has been a big issue with support for Ukraine, that they've been, they run through artillery and munitions often faster than production companies can keep up with. And by the way, even faster than our own stockpiles can keep up with. We have to maintain, we in Europe uh, and other partners that have been providing support to Ukraine have to maintain our own combat readiness. So we need to have our own stockpiles. And that aid, by the way, that that uh, 60 billion also is in part to replenish our own yeah. stockpiles. So they need yeah. to move pretty quickly. So that's 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 to put that out there. So to under, to understand the gravity that they would win this war within a matter of weeks. What does that look like? It could look like a different, a number of different things. I, I think that would mean that they would install somebody in Ukraine who's pro-Kremlin and that they would take over the 20% of Ukraine, the land that they've already taken, that they are, they, they are in charge of. And then it could, it could, it could go further into that as, as years go on. That's the immediate. And that's sometimes when I hear Republicans talk about aid to Ukraine, I feel like they're only thinking about this in that box. And they're thinking, well, this is a war that's thousands of miles away. And, uh, and you know, maybe Ukraine should cut a deal and, and give away some of this land and just so that we don't have to be supporting it anymore. This is why not only is that terrible, but even the difficulty in giving aid is terrible. Why? Because if, if Russia wins, they don't stop at Ukraine. They will continue on to Georgia and Moldova because they see very clearly that the international community is fed up, that they're, they have limited resources, that they're not going to go run after every single country to support them. And then that's a message to every dictator around the world telling them that they can do land grabs or invade their neighbors because, again, the international community is fatigued, is tired. They are focused more on putting food on the table or lowering gas prices. And so they're also not going to run to their help. And by the way, in one year alone, in 2023 alone, you already saw three sort of half attempts at this. In one year, you had Azerbaijan take over in 24 hours, an area in within its borders called Nagorno-Karabakh, which was governed and populated by ethnic Armenians. They took it over and the 120,000 ethnic Armenians who were living there fled to Armenia, fled, gone. Then you had China put out a national map where they staked claim and sovereignty over the entirety of the South China Sea, parts of the Himalayas, and other areas. And the risk with that is that then their military will enforce it. And you're already seeing that happen in the South China Sea. And then you had Venezuela do this weirdo land grab where, or attempted land grab, where they put a referendum, a vote to their people 
to ask them if they supported taking over two-thirds of their neighbor, Guyana, uh, the Essequibo region, which is rich in oil. And their people allegedly, though, you know, these votes are, are rigged, um, voted in favor of it. And, and now they're in negotiations. But, you know, why would these attempts even happen? Why would that brazenness exist? It's because they're watching Putin do this. And so, so that, so it's a, it's a message to dictators everywhere. I haven't even gotten to the part about our alliances. If you are Japan and South Korea, for sure, you're going to start questioning, well, is the U.S. really always going to be there for us? If North Korea comes at us, if China comes at us, um, it, it starts to become questionable. The EU is going to- what we say. Yeah. And so if I'm President Xi and I'm sitting there and I'm watching what's happening on Capitol Hill very closely, watching- Congress face difficulty, debate this aid to Ukraine, tie it to all sorts of other issues. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to think, hmm, this might not be such a bad time to do something toward Taiwan because the Americans seem fed up already. They can, they barely want to support Ukraine and Israel. You know, they're, 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 by the time I do something in Taiwan, they're just going to be fed up with foreign conflicts. And I don't think he would be wrong in that assessment, unfortunately. And so this has, it just ripple effects. If you add to that Trump rising, following that, you've got leader, you've got Putin and Xi watching that very closely because they know that it would translate, Putin in particular, would tra- it would translate to a policy that would be uh, more focused on the United States, uh, much more hesitant in giving foreign aid. And um, and the problem with that is that EU, the EU will think that the US would not run to help the EU or NATO, mm. if a NATO country is attacked, which undermines the deterrence of NATO and our alliances. Basically, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> I've, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I know I've painted a very ugly, an, un- an ugly scenario that has, you know, if this, then that, and if this, then that. But, but that is how national security works. And uh, this is really what's at stake here. So there's, there's one thing you said that I'm curious about, which we don't have to really get into it, but your confidence that they're going to get this deal done given Republicans' cynicism and tying these deals together. I don't know where that confidence comes from unless you know something I don't. No, I mean, it's what I'm seeing in the press. I just, I, I, okay. you know, I keep, I try to keep, stay on top of this and I keep seeing the top Republican negotiators saying, you know, we just have this to work out. Now, again, they have been saying that for a while. They've been saying that since end of December. And this has already gone longer than I expected. I thought this would be wrapped up at the beginning of the year. I, re- I really do think it'll come through in part because of the assessment the White House has given, in part because you have you do have Republican leaders, Mitch McConnell and others, who seem to understand and and publicly say that it's important to support Ukraine, that they understand what's at stake here. Um, and because I think that the Biden administration does want to make a deal um, to support the southern border. So I, I think that they'll get there. But again, just sh- even if they do, and I do think they will, but even if, if they do, just showing how difficult it was to get there is already problematic. And I, I also worry that it, this is it for the year um, until we pass, until we get through the next election. And that is also concerning. Okay. So Mike, there's a, there's a lot of different directions we could go here. And you and I have talked a lot about Ukraine. Politicology listeners will remember us doing podcasts from Ukraine shortly after the war broke out. And our good friend Molly McHugh is on her way over there very soon. Again, I think it's okay for me to say that. Um, The thing I'd kind of like to zero in on, first of all, I think Hagar's right in everything she said. And it kind of really breaks my heart to think about the Ukrainians that we met over there fighting for our values, fighting 
our war for us, bleeding and dying, and all they're asking for are bullets. Um, to see this fucking circus. Um, that is why is, it's really Ukraine is the deal of the century. That's why, yeah. because we are not sending our own troops there, and yet they're fighting on behalf of everybody. It's 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 embarrassing uh, uh, for us. But I think where I'd like to go with this is how Biden might potentially be able to turn this issue around on Republicans. And one thing that comes to mind, so Hagar said two things. One, obviously, and we've mentioned this before, but I feel like this really still hasn't penetrated the zeitgeist, which is that all the money that we're spending is to buy new shit for our military, to replenish our own munitions, our own defensive capabilities, our own munitions, which Republicans are now stopping. They're we should be talking about this as if it is uh, military spending, U.S. military defense spending, because that is ultimately what it is. We're giving away old stuff to Ukraine. We're buying new stuff and updating our military capabilities. And I don't know why maybe that lane hasn't opened up or why we haven't seen more uh, pro-Ukraine Democrats start to talk about it in that way. I wonder if that might be more effective. And the other thing is, Hagar mentioned a lot of the ways Republicans are talking about this is if it's a war that's a long ways away from here and doesn't really matter um, as if they really believe that. But of course, most of these people, and until a few years ago, the vast majority of these Republicans understood that Russia was our adversary and that anything we could do to weaken and disarm Russia would be in our interest. And, in, and it now seems like I don't buy this Oh, they 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 really believe that this doesn't matter. That this is a far off uh, war that has nothing to do with us, and we should stop intervening. No, they know exactly what's happening here, and the same level of cynicism that's at play on the on the immigration deal is at play in the Ukraine deal. So, I wonder what you think about the politics of this and the potential for the White House to turn it around. Well, look, I I couldn't agree with you more on everything that you just said. I mean, the, to, to to believe that Marjorie Taylor Greene actually believes that this is somehow an America first thing and not doing Putin's bidding is just to to suspend all of your own belief in reality. Of course, they know what this is about. This is about Russia getting what Russia wants. And those are voices in this country that are advocating uh, to to starve Ukraine of the fight that it needs to put up are are literally doing Vladimir Putin's work. There's anybody with with more than a sixth grade sensibility understands that this war will be lost in weeks. <clears throat> Chokes me up to say that because of the people that we know that are there fighting. Uh, you know, and the, the Ukrainians, by the way, the Ukrainians, and they will say this: they will win this war, outmanned ten to one, if they are just given the fire firepower to win. And I I believe them. I believe them then, and I believe that you know we will. Go back, Ron, to 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 see those people again when Ukraine is is free and out of duress. But this is a critical moment in that fight. And the way I think you get to win, actually, the way I think you get to a win is with McConnell, you know, putting up and basically saying, "Look, we'll move this deal too, but you're going to have to unfreeze Russia's assets and sell them. <laughs> like, let's we need to start using Russia's assets. I don't know how many there are. I don't know if it's five dollars worth or five hundred million dollars worth." But this is that moment to use their own money against them and make that part of the political deal, 
right? Because a lot of, a lot of Americans will say, well, why weren't we doing that in the first place, right? That's where the average American voter is going to be, and it's a damn good question. But the second is make it part of the deal point that you're all going to agree with anyway and start moving again offensively on this issue. This needs to be – look, guys, we need to start framing this as an anti-Russia, anti-Putin effort more than a free Ukraine protect Ukraine effort. We need to move off of the defense here. We need to start – Biden needs to start getting more aggressively prescriptive in what we're fighting against as much as what we are fighting for. That's what's going to move American public opinion and get the average American person back into this into this fight, back into committing to it, and back to making it a political issue. Let me, let me say this. The last time we had an older, you know, um, kind of a, viewed as a backbencher president who wasn't really kind of supposed to be there but was just there in a take, you know, caretaker role was Harry Truman. And, the, and Truman realigned the geopolitical order when he was in office. This is that same moment. This is history rhyming, guys. Biden's there. He was kind of the caretaker. He was put in the office because he's the only guy who could beat you know, Donald Trump, and he's done that. And the American public's kind of like, well, we don't really know if this guy's got the gravitas. Look, Biden has re- reconstituted NATO, at least a political will for NATO. He's fighting uh, you know the the Houthis in 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 the Middle East, and he's 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 both fortifying our efforts there while trying to prevent an expanding war there, and at the same time is looking over his shoulder into the South China Sea. Okay, this is a test of America's dominance. It is not just Putin; it's largely Putin. It is she. It is the Iranians. It is this global effort to destabilize the United States hegemony. This is the moment. And unfortunately, I believe our greatest weakness is internal. It is in the Republican Party. It is from from assets that are being deployed to destabilize us from within. That is the only thing preventing our success in helping our allies and freedom lovers throughout the world. The biggest obstacle to Ukrainian success is the Republican Party here in this country. That's what it is. That is the biggest problem that our allies in the Middle East face and the biggest problem that we face in the South China Sea is the, 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 the domestic influences that are working against us in our own Congress and in uh, the, one of the, the two great parties uh, of this country. That's what history is going to write, and it's becoming more evident every day. And uh, this president, I don't know how he's, you know, it's, it's you know, kind of, I, I don't know how he's, he's balancing and spinning plates while he's tap dancing through a minefield here, but somehow he's doing it. And you got to give the guy credit. Like I said, no one, the expectations for Harry Truman were so low that he was surpassing them in many ways. What I see Biden doing and reconstituting the geopolitical order and, and, and increasing America's strength is exactly what's happening here. But our resolve has to be demonstrable. We have to show up because everyone, as Agar just said, is watching. Our enemies are watching, whether they be strong or whether they be weak. When America falters, when America shows weakness, everybody perks up and listens and starts to move aggressively because that vacuum needs to be and and will be filled. And if we allow that to happen, it is our fault. It is our, our, you know, relinquishing our duty as a global power and as the as the tip of the spear for the free world. That's that's what's happening uh, daily. So until we start framing it in those terms uh, and not allowing this to be viewed as a regional war and start explaining the stakes. I mean, I love these people who are saying, you know, oh, you know, it's this far off war. It doesn't matter. 
if Ukraine falls in a matter of weeks, we're going to have boots on the ground in in Krakow. Yep. We're going to have we're going to yep. have boots on the ground in Poland, fortifying that border. And 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 Europe, you know, a, a dark dark shadow falls over Europe again. And these are the same forces, and it's the same debate. And we can't allow history to do this. We've got to demand that they, we be more offensive. Uh, in this struggle. I'm sorry, I've gone on yep. too long here, but I'm passionate about this. It's an emotional issue people. for you and for me, yeah. and I know for Hagar, it's uh it's it's, it's everything. It's, it's so much more real also if you if you've actually put feet on soil yeah. there. Yeah. And and um <sighs> let's turn to what we're watching under the radar over the radar, wherever it happens to be. What developments are you keeping an eye on, Agar? Well, I've been fascinated by what's happening in Germany uh, very quickly. Over the weekend, um, over a million protesters uh, demonstrated across Germany against their far-right political party called the Alternative for Germany, otherwise known as AFD. And the thing that sparked these protests is what I found absolutely terrifying in particular because this is a political party that enjoys quite a fair amount of support in Germany. So let me break that down a little bit. So first, a nonprofit research institute called Corrective released a report, an investigative report that they did, that found that officials from this political party met with some far-right political officials in Germany, some business leaders, and this far-right Austrian um, uh, far-right Austrian activist, if you will. Um, and they had a secret meeting where they planned a master plan. They talked about a master plan to pursue mass deportations from Germany. Should this political power AFD, sh- sorry, should this political party AFD come to power and they would deport, um, they would deport all non-assimilated Germans and uh, including Germans uh, with, uh, re- sorry, non-Germans with resident rights, residency rights and uh, and Germans who hadn't, uh, German citizens who hadn't assimilated to uh, Germany. And, uh, and so this is their plan. Um, and all asylum seekers, all asylum migrants, they would all be uh, mass deported, which is very eerily reminiscent to plans that, Nazis had in the 1940s to deport 4 million Jews to Madagascar. Oh, by the way, they would be deported to a, quote, model state in North Africa. So this secret meeting happened and was serious in its planning. And this political party, AFD, enjoys, they're, they're, pol- they're polling at 22%. And that's significant in Germany because it has a multi-party system. And that polling number, 22%, is greater than each of the centrist, three centrist, and one center-left party enjoys. That's higher than each of those other parties have right now. And they have state elections in the coming months where AFD participants could really get spots and gain influence. So this is a real fucking problem in Germany. Like this is not, this is not bluster. This is not like, oh, those far right wackos. This is a real serious problem. And I'm grateful that this organization did this report, investigative report, and they put it out. And I'm really grateful that over a million Germans hit the street to warn against 
the return of Nazis. That's what they're saying. This is the return of Nazis. They were protesting against fascism. And I think that that's great. And I'm so glad because in the United States, you know, the only, the only movement I'm really seeing, uh, garnering that much support is the effort to buy Stanley cups. And I really still can't understand why owning one, I really don't understand it. And, um, and so I'm, I'm moved by the effort to move against them. And I'm horrified that this group even came up with this master plan in a very serious way. But I just, I really just hope that it translates in their elections in the coming months. And so I'm going to be watching that very closely. I've really scared you all today. I'm really not very doom and gloom. My eyes were just like popped open. I had no idea this. I I saw the headline. I did not realize there was so much under the surface there. Same, by the way, same with me. Same with me. I was, I saw the headline and I was like, yeah, yeah. Isn't this more like the farmer protests? And then I started reading one article and my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Okay. Um, I've got two. I'm going to try and blitz through here very quickly, but maybe they're a little bit more hopeful uh, than that. I don't know why they're. (laughs) So uh, as you both know, our listeners certainly know I've been something of a court watcher for the last several months. Uh, I mean, the Supreme court. So two cases um, that I want to just mention here really quick. Last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case challenging Chevron deference. Basically, it's the legal doctrine that has developed over time that federal courts could defer to a federal agency's interpretation of a statute when the statute is ambiguous. So, uh, you know, if the agency's interpretation is, uh, you know, reasonable, whatever that means. Based on the oral arguments, it sounds like the court is likely to limit or overturn Chevron entirely. That would mean the federal court would interpret the statute and not defer to the agency as a default. So what does that really mean? There's a lot of hand-wringing going on about this on the left, where uh, you know the, there are some areas of technical expertise where courts probably should defer to trained experts, like, I don't know, with the Nuclear Regulatory Agency or say, you know, something. But um, there, there are two things I think are really important that, to think about if you are sort of concerned, very concerned, and you're on the left, and you're like, oh, no, the federal government's not going to be able to do anything anymore. I would, I would suggest you think about this. First, Congress actually should be legislating regulations. They actually should be making rules. That's how it's supposed to work. And moreover, it is more democratic. And if you have more democratic representation involved in uh, making federal law, uh, uh, I would argue that that's a good thing. Um, and the reason Congress has sort of ground to a halt and can almost never do anything now, yes, has to do a lot with partisanship and, and, and negative partisanship, but also because they can, because they've been allowed for so long to write the very vague statutes and pass them off to uh, federal agencies to interpret, and those agencies often are bipolar in the way they interpret these because you have different presidents of different persuasions coming in and remaking rules all the time. Second, with the potential for a second Trump term, when he's telling us exactly how he'd abuse the executive branch, including these agencies, to go after his enemies, help himself, I think we should be thinking very seriously about um, about the power of the executive branch and taking steps to limit that power. And I made the same argument about the Jarkissi case, uh, which was argued recently, uh, in which the government's practice of administrative tribunals to adjudicate violations of rules that they themselves make, uh, and in which defendants are not granted key elements of due process, like their uh, Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. Um, These are things that the court is considering now. And I would 
I would argue if you're concerned about um, the the size and scope of the federal government being uh, curtailed and you think that's a bad thing, um, I think you need to look at the other side of that coin and um, and that the timing of these decisions, if they come out this way, may ultimately be a good thing. Uh, the second is this Colorado case about uh, about keeping Trump off the ballot in uh, in the state. The oral arguments are coming up on February 8th. I said a couple of weeks ago that I was looking forward to reading the amicus briefs, especially the one from Professor Akhil Amar. Uh, and there was one thread in particular that I found really interesting. So he wrote this brief with his brother, uh, Vic Amar. There is a historical figure uh, from the Civil War era who has completely flown under the radar here. You've probably never heard of him. Uh, as a matter of fact, Amar jokes that you've heard of Benedict Arnold, but you've never heard of John B. Floyd. He was the Secretary of War under James Buchanan and later went on to become a Confederate general. But here's the most important piece. Floyd used his cabinet position to try to stop Congress from counting the Electoral College votes for Lincoln. Here's how Amar puts it. Floyd used the great powers of his office through a devious combination of affirmative acts and strategic failures to act to try to thwart a proper transition of power. Does that sound familiar? You're going to hear a lot of arguments about this case, and this is one of the more persuasive ones when it comes to the comparison between, you know, the insurrection and that what Trump did doesn't really look like civil war, right? That's what a lot of people are saying. Amar is arguing that this was the first insurrection, and everybody in Reconstruction era um, Congress would have known Floyd's name and exactly what he did. Uh, so their argument is that, you know, his actions before the Civil War started made him an insurrectionist, an oathbreaker, emphasis on the oathbreaker, and put him firmly in the bullseye of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So we'll put a link to that brief in the show notes. I recommend everybody read it. Um, uh, it's it's truly excellent. And I'm watching that case very closely, as you know. Mike, what'd you bring for us? Um, well, once again, eyes are on China. New York Times uh, wrote a story just today saying that the one China policy is showing the collapse of uh, the, po- the population increase numbers in China is greater than they had anticipated. And this is leading to economic stagnation. And again, we've talked a lot about uh, e- uh, China's uh, internal domestic problems and its economic conundrum. I think this is probably one of the main drivers because it's socially a problem. And what is fascinating to me and what's fascinating about the story is not just this extraordinary decline in population um, as a result of kind of the, the overall, you know, uh, more advanced economies are, are, are seeing population decline. But 30 years of China's one-child policy is actually now having this cumulative effect of, of, of the inability to really re, re bolster its, its, its population numbers to help its economy stabilize. Uh, add on to that is, you know, during the one one child policy, all Chinese families wanted men. So there's a disproportionate number of men. And what's happening is women now are, are there's a there's a very aggressive campaign in China to to convince women to kind of go back to the home and have children as part of a national, you know, as part of a nationalistic effort. And Chinese women are kind of, they're not having it. They're, they're having their own careers. There's, you know, they've got their choice of what they, you know, men they want to, to, to date and see and marry or if they want to marry or, and they're, they're basically being asked by their country to, to, to uh, you know, now take on the brunt of its mistakes. Uh, these are career-oriented, educated women. And increasingly they're saying, 
that's not the life that we want to live. And um, so even with the declining population, the, 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 the one solution that China has to turn that, that, that dynamic around uh, is decidedly not buying into it and is just continuing this steep, you look at the numbers um, uh, on a graph and it's just a drop off of a cliff of their population at a time when they desperately need the labor force reinvigorated. Uh, add on to that, you know, high unemployment with younger people too. Totally. And you've got these, yep. you've got these huge problems, which again, in my mind, it's like, what's the solution to all of this? And I hate to be so cynical, but oftentimes it's, it's war, right? It's what gets yep. you out of it. And you have to remember that internally, both Putin and Xi face these huge internal challenges economically, of which the only solution sometimes is war. So my eyes are always fixated uh, there on China, especially as we are opening up, you know, essentially a second front in the Middle East. And we're being taxed there by our enemies. Uh, our resolve becomes all the more important in drawing the line there, because if we do demonstrate weakness or a lack of commitment, it opens up the possibility of a third front. And then at that point, um, we 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 know that we're we're essentially you know flirting with the early stages of a global conflict with currency fights and misinformation campaigns and the intrusion into people's elections. Uh, this this would take it to the next level. So. Okay, before we head over to Politicology Plus, which, again, we're going to unlock as a preview for everybody today, where can everybody find you on the internet? I am across social media at at Geek Out with Hagar, because I love when people geek out with me. And my show is at Oh My World Show on across social media. And please subscribe, Oh My World, on YouTube. Amazing. Love what you do. Mike, where are you these days? Follow me on, uh, at, uh, on Threads at Madrid underscore Mike one or back on old Twitter X, whatever it is. Uh, I still hang out and lurk into those dark shadows and alleys somewhere at Madrid underscore Mike. Okay. And will we have news to share about a book soon? We will have news to share very, very soon. So I'm excited and you'll hear about it on Politicology first. Beautiful. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover Politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode. 